When an engineer is offered a job at a tech company, that engineer's compensation is often partly in cash and partly in equity, which is shares in a company. How should an engineer evaluate that offer? How should they negotiate? In the world of equity compensation, costly and avoidable mistakes are routine, and this hurts both companies and employees. Josh Levy was on Software Engineering Daily previously to talk about the Amazon Web Services Open Guide, and this was one of the most popular episodes that we've ever had. In this episode, Josh returns and is joined by Joe Wallen, a lawyer who has been involved in startups for many years. I discussed with Joe and Josh the Open Guide to Equity Compensation, which is a resource designed to clear up the confusion around stock, options, and fundraising. It's a tremendously useful and concise overview of what an engineer or a founder needs to know when it comes to equity financing. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was very educational for me, very useful for me. And I think if you're involved in any discussions around equity compensation, this is a useful conversation for you to listen to as well. Josh Levy and Joe Wallen are authors of The Open Guide to Equity Compensation. Josh and Joe, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Today we're talking about equity compensation. When an engineer is offered a job at a tech company, their compensation is partly in cash and partly in equity for most positions. Shares of the company are what compose the equity. Josh, you are an engineer. Why is it important for an engineer to understand how the equity part of the compensation works? Right. So if you think about jobs in general, knowledge workers of all kinds, you know, have different kinds of compensation and, you know, from, from salary to benefits to equity. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those kinds of equity, I'm sure. But especially for software engineers, traditionally high tech companies have often had a lot of growth. And that meant that they've increasingly found it really valuable to incentivize people with ownership of the company in some form. So it, it turns out that just a lot of the value of your compensation might turn out to be the equity component, like the stock or the stock options or the RSUs. This is even more the case in folks who are joining early stage startups, because often people want to join startups because they think the company is going to grow very fast. And so it makes a lot more sense to say, I'd like a piece of this company rather than a specific salary. And, you know, everyone knows that there are cases of people becoming enormously rich on, on startups that have, have done well, like Facebook or, or Google or any of the other really enormous ones. And, and many smaller ones, too, people have done very well. So it, it's a big factor for especially high-value tech workers like programmers. Joe, you are a lawyer. Explain some common situations that you see engineers suffering from when they don't understand how the equity works? That's a really good question. So, yeah, so I'm a lawyer. I represent, you know, mostly companies, although sometimes founders individually or executives negotiating their deals with companies. Yeah, and you know, the the stock option landscape is, or the equity comp landscape is unfortunately, I mean, it's just sort of a little bit of a maze. And and that's partially due to the fact that we have complicated tax laws and the tax laws make things more difficult than they need to be. So, you know, you wind up with all these sort of, con- you know, you want to call them, I want to use the word contraption, but there are basically workarounds so people can try to not get themselves in a 
tax situation where they can't afford to pay the bill. And I've been involved or have seen plenty of people decide they want a particular type of equity award and then later <laughs> later regret it. <laughs> so, I mean, the, you know, receiving a, a big chunk of shares that's going to vest over time and, you know, the value of which today is more than you can pay tax on. I mean, that's a situation where you know, it doesn't make any sense to accept that award at all because if you can't pay the tax today, you're certainly probably not going to be able to pay it when the award vests. And so cognizance of the tax rules and in light of the stage of the company that you're joining, I mean, you just sort of need to know, like, hey, for a company that's early stage, you know, if I can't if I can't afford the tax hit of getting restricted stock, then I need to probably do an option. And you know, maybe I should negotiate my post, you know, post-termination of service exercise period to be longer than the typical 90 days. I mean, you have all these weird tax rules. Like, for example, the 90-day thing, you might just wonder, like, how did it come to be that companies just sort of defaulted to only giving former service providers 90 days to exercise their options or have them lapse? You might wonder, like, where did that, how did that even come to be? Like, who dreamed <laughs> that up or who imagined it in the first place? I think the archaeology of it is that, you know, back when Congress passed the rules on incentive stock options... Congress said, well, your option won't be considered an incentive stock option if you don't exercise it within 90 days of leaving. Now, the rule doesn't say you can't have five years to exercise it after leaving. The rule says if you don't exercise it within 90 days, then it won't qualify as an ISO. And so anyway, I think that's the reason why we find all these companies that just have written in 90 days. You have 90 days. Conveniently, it ties into helping companies keep their cap tables clean because he wants to keep track of former yes. workers for years and years. I mean, that is a problem. Although I do think that, and Josh has written about this, or actually other people in the community at large, and we've cited them in the equity comp guide, have written about the 90-day thing is, you know, can be unfair in quite a few different circumstances. Yeah. And it seems to me that at least as often as the times in which the company is doing it because it serves the company's interests of the cap table being clean. It is just because the company is moving really fast and the people in charge of the company maybe don't know much about equity compensation. And so they just copy paste some text from one one document to another. Is that accurate? Well, I think most companies are working with, well, hopefully working with, you know, good counsel and following you know, following industry standard approaches to things. I think right. I think company founders get it beat into them pretty hard by their lawyers and their advisors that, you know, hey, when it comes to your legal documents, don't don't try to be a creative, creative. engineer, <laughs> right? <laughs> your creativity needs to be reserved for your product offering, not your legal, you know, stuff. And so I think now is that is that true? Is that is that something that that should be kept in mind? Or do you think there is room for creativity? Well I think there, I think there's room Sorry, Josh, I'm interrupted. Well, I was just going to say that, I, I mean, as someone who's been in early stage companies, it's just that it's such a, a shortness of time and where you put your effort. And so I think it's often not right, right. not maliciousness or, not a or, good idea. or, you know, or, or founders trying to be unfair. But when your lawyer says, this is going to be a lot of work not to take the standard path, and yeah. it will take you a lot of time and attention to focus on this. You just have to decide, am I going to put this much of my effort into this and not into the 75 other things I have to do this month? Yeah. And yeah. so it's hard to have progress with that. And so it just tends to the momentum of convention. It's very hard to overcome. Yeah. Even though it would be great. But, you know, I just think about from the starting a company perspective, there would be all kinds of cool things that you could do around equity compensation. But 
like you said, you probably want to reserve that time and bandwidth to building the actual company. A quote from The Open Guide to Equity Compensation, which you are both authors of, Costly and avoidable mistakes are routine, and this hurts both companies and employees. Why are the mistakes around equity compensation so common, especially if everything is so standardized? Well, I'll start. I'm sure Joe will have a lot more to say. I think that there's a variety of reasons. And like I say, some people, I think, sometimes assume that it's like companies trying to give employees a bad shake, and that's not always the case. Sometimes it is just a straight-up negotiation tactic that if an employee doesn't understand what equity looks like and how it works, it's just very hard to make a fair you know, negotiation happen. And so you very well might accept something that's just a lot less. If someone says, I'm going to pay you $100,000, you know what that's worth. But if they say, I'm going to give you 100,000 stock options, there's a lot more things you have to understand to even have a guess at what it's worth. And even then, it'll be a probability. So it's just much easier to, to have asymmetry of knowledge around you know, what a company knows when it's giving you its own stock versus what you're getting as an employee. So I think there's just a big asymmetry of knowledge. Some of it is around the company's data, and some of it is around how the system works. And so I think a lot of what the guide is trying to address is some of the things around how the system works. I certainly can say that I've had a lot of engineer friends over the years and include myself including, you know, thought about startup offers at different times and felt I just really didn't understand very well how the system worked or others didn't. And, and it's, it seems like it's important, at least given the complexity of the system we're in, that everyone at least understands the system and then, you know, makes fair, fair discussions and understanding of what, what their offers are and negotiate around that. Yeah, so... Let's get into this from the engineer's perspective, and eventually I want to get into it from the founder's perspective so we can understand things from both angles. But starting with just the engineer who receives an offer letter from a startup company, there are several types of compensation. There's cash, there's benefits, there's equity. The cash and the benefits are pretty easy to understand, and that's why we're focusing on equity in this conversation. What are the different types of equity compensation that might be included in that offer letter? And let's start with Joe. Sure. So, I mean, the most common would be, you know, just stock options. But as companies get more mature, there might be RSUs that are offered. On the opposite side of the spectrum, if the company is really close to, you know, is really recently formed company, the options might be either immediately exercisable or they might be actually just restricted stock awards. So that's sort of the spectrum. And the spectrum is driven by a couple different things. You know, the bigger a company gets and the more and the closer it gets to doing an IPO, the more likely it's going to want to maybe use something like RSUs. I know a lot of companies ramping toward their IPOs will, will go to RSUs. And they'll do that because they have a high degree of confidence they're going to get to liquidity events of some kind. And so those kind of awards can make sense. Options can work great for most private companies that are sort of, you know, beyond the founding stage and, you know, pre, pre-hitting a real significant, you know, maybe a you know, pre-series C or something, you know, pre-product market fit or pre-significant, you know, revenues. And the reason why options work great in that context is because you can give someone a, an award that, that'll incent them, given the sort of runway of the company, 
and potentially significantly incent them. They can receive the option tax-free as long as it's priced at fair market value. And it can be, you know, the options can be great. And usually those are the most common awards I see for that, you know, type of company. The purpose of equity compensation is to attract the best talent and to align the incentives between individuals and the interests of the company. Josh, you have been in situations where you're in charge of employees. You've been in situations where you're an engineer at the bottom of the rung and you're getting hired, I'm sure. Given your experience in different areas of the management ladder, why is equity such an important tool for attracting talent and aligning the incentives of the different people involved? Right. It really is a, a key element for especially companies that are growing. You know, if, if a company is fairly static growth, you know, just like relatively small growth, then having ownership of the company is kind of equivalent to knowing what the value of that is, you know, hopefully in, in cash of some sort. But if you are expecting the company to grow, then it means I'm getting something now that will be worth much more later. And so that has a lot of benefits. One is that everyone wants the company to grow, so they're going to work harder to make the company grow. And everyone knows they kind of are all in the same, the same boat and, you know, everyone rowing in the same direction is helpful. And then secondly, if you think it's going to be really big, then you'll have some of the best engineers will join that company. So that it's really around perception of growth that really makes the best people join. And then once you're in, makes you try to perform in the interest of the company. And so that helps the company in a lot of ways. And for the employees that are there, it generally helps the employees. So that's at a high level. At a very specific level, I mean, it, for employees who are understand what the value is and are really motivated by what direction they think a company is going to go in, it can just be really exciting to say, well, I own this percentage of this great company. It's just a, also a sort of a, a personal feeling of like having some ownership, I think, can be pretty, pretty powerful, especially at early stages when you're, you are a small number of folks and you feel like you each have a chunk of the, of the company. Stock in a company is the representation of ownership, and the ownership value that you have is represented by how many shares of stock you have. The total ownership of the company is distributed among the total number of stock shares. In order to know what your stock shares are worth, you need to know the total number of outstanding shares. So these are the total shares that have been initialized in the company's existence, only then can you actually know the percentage of ownership that you hold. This sounds fairly straightforward, but there are plenty of gradations that make it more complex than it might be at first glance. Joe, what are some of the ways that employees get confused around this terminology of ownership and stock shares? Sure. It is, I think, confusing because in your typical company, the founders will have issued themselves founder stock and they'll have set aside an option pool of some amount. So that might be, you know, a pretty straightforward start. You know, if you have three founders and each of them own 2 million shares, so there's 6 million shares outstanding and you have an option pool of, let's just say 2 million to make our math easy. So we have 8 million shares outstanding on a fully diluted basis. Well, if you've 
if you received an option to acquire, you know, 800,000 shares, you could take 800,000 over that 8 million and figure out, well, on a fully diluted basis, at least my percentage looks like this right now. But then what happens, of course, is companies start doing things like convertible note offerings. You know, maybe they're issuing warrants to one, you know, party or another. And then the math gets a little more complex. Maybe the convertible notes have valuation caps so that when the company actually gets to its fixed price financing, the valuation on the financing might be a $10 million pre-money, but you might have a bunch of notes that are coming in you know, at the valuation cap of, say, $6 million. And so dilution works in a way that can be a little more extreme than people think, and that affects the option holders. So it can be not the easiest thing to figure out, like, hey, what, what am I looking at here? I mean, post, you know, say you join a pre-series seed in the middle of a note round, it might not be the easiest thing to discern where your equity percentage is going to arrive at after the financing, right? You're going to have to make some educated guesses about what the valuation at which the company is going to raise the money and other things like this to sort of make a guess. Hmm. And of course, that's just the Series Seed round. So you're probably going to have at least a Series A or hopefully a Series A after that, right? And if the company is you know, going to be a success, there's going to be a Series B too, probably, and maybe even a Series C. So you kind of think to yourself, well, if I'm starting at with an option of 800000 over $8 million fully diluted, after all those rounds of financing, where do I think I'm going to wind up? Who knows? You know, I think most people, and Josh can comment on this, but I think most people, when they are evaluating their offer, they're looking at it in terms of where they sit right now. Is that a fair offer? Hmm. Is that a fair offer based on their skill set and everything else? I don't think a lot of people get too obsessed about trying to speculate too far down the road because it's just so hard to, to know. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would throw out there is if you're an old hand, a lot of those terms that Joe just mentioned are make sense to you. But if you're wondering, like, what a f- what fully diluted means or, or some of those terms, we do define all of those in the guide, I would say, is look for the boldface terms. That's one of the things I've noticed with this kind of discussions is, like, often folks who have not spent time just learning about this, it's just a lot of terminology. And you're just like, well, what does that mean? Yes. So part of the guide is trying to cover some of that terminology. And you can't talk about it without using the terminology. So... <laughs> <laughs> So if any of that didn't make sense to you, check out the, the bold-faced kind of... Agreed. And we will get into some of those terms. But Joe Joe pointed out something that I'm not sure if I entirely agree with. So he said that when you are evaluating your stock, you really want to look at the present situation of the company. From my point of view, if you're looking at joining a startup... You really want to think about the long-term implications of the company. You want to think about almost like how big could the company potentially get, and under those circumstances, how valuable would my stock be? Because you're not, you don't want to be thinking about the average case, because if you're, you're thinking about the average case, then you should probably go work at a, at a big company. You want to be thinking about what are the outsized returns that I might be able to get, and I want to join this startup because the market doesn't identify those outsized returns as well as the market can identify the average returns at a big company. Josh, do you does that resonate with you? I actually think you're both right. So I guess the way I I would describe it, you know, and, and much of this guide is really around sort of how I would describe it to a friend if they were asking advice, is that you really have to think of different scenarios. It's like an investment, but it just turns out that there's several scenarios. You know, when you're investing it, your money in something, you might be thinking, well, there's a chance I might do really well. There's a chance I might be doing really poorly. But you try to figure out what those risks are. And this is the same. You're investing your time. And you're trying to say, I'm going to put my time into this company. And what are the probabilities of different outcomes? And 
that is a function both of the value now and the possible value in the future and the probabilities of those different outcomes. And in the case of equity, there's some key different outcomes. We tend to think about like just big or small, but there's some key different kinds of outcomes that will really impact you specifically. And it's worth actually, I think, thinking about each one. First off, you shouldn't be joining a startup unless we seem to be focusing on startups. So some of this does apply to bigger stage companies. You could be joining Apple or Google and getting RSUs. But let's talk about startups. If you're joining a startup, most startups fail. Like they just do. And you should be okay with that and understand that you have that risk tolerance going in. Again, like an investment. You're investing your time and you're saying, a lot of my compensation is going to be possibly zero because the startup will fail. But I'm okay with that because there's a probability of a big win or I really want to work with this team, or I'll learn a lot. All of those are really good reasons. Secondly, there are some other scenarios that are not the things we always immediately think about as like, well, it turns into the next Facebook. But it obviously could, in which case, if you're the next Facebook, the little details are often going to be lost in the noise. You're just going to be happy you're part of the, along with the ride, and you have a, a little piece of that because it'll be worth a lot. So you might want to say, well, could this company be enormous? You know, could it be Uber? Or could it be something like this? And maybe it could, and that's great. You might still join a company because you're not looking for you know, a unicorn sort of thing, but you're looking for a healthy ownership in a company that will still be healthy and somehow be sustainable or find an exit inside of, you know, to another company that has liquidity where you would get some of that cash within a few years. And that second scenario is something you should explicitly think through and you should actually talk about when you're joining a company and see what their strategy is. Because some companies are like, yeah, we're totally open to being acquired or it might, this is something we're going big Usually companies will always tell you they're going big, but it's worth thinking through those different scenarios. Not everything will go as planned. And so are there secondary exits? And if exits are very important to understand because a large chunk of startups exit to it, but via acquisition, and then that results in liquidity, and then the liquidity will be calculated based on all the rules and parameters of your equity grant. And that's the stuff that, that a lot of the things that Joe is alluding to, so things like liquidation preferences and so on. And so knowing about that will help you evaluate the middle level of outcomes. And so if the terms of the deal are good, then during that exit, you'll probably get something. But if the terms of the deal are poor, like in, the day, in some you know, deals a few years back, there were high liquidation preferences, which meant that investors got paid back first at an exit, which meant employees didn't get anything or got less than they expected. That's happened for a lot of companies. That's a probability. So you can work out that and have some control over that scenario as well. Right. So that that's the issue of sort of the, the liquidation preference overhang, which, you know, I think if you're going to work for a company that's done multiple rounds of preferred financing and you know that the that some of the rounds have been very, very large, I think that's a legitimate question you can ask, like, hey, what is our what is our liquidation preference overhang? And what, what I mean by that is what amounts do the preferred stockholders have to be paid back before the common holders share in anything? So I think that's a, if you're looking at going to work in a unicorn, that's a fair, fair question to ask. Right. This gets us into the two kinds of stock. I want to reset with a boilerplate question because I kind of want to vacillate between these boilerplate questions and these more complex discussions. Broadly speaking, there are two kinds of stock. There's common stock and preferred stock. Joe, explain the difference between these types of stock. Sure. Well, under the corporate law, common stock is just stock which is entitled to the residual value of the of the assets of the company after all the after all the debts have been paid and after any stock with liquidation or other preferences has been taken care of. So preferred stock is called preferred because it has rights, preferences, and privileges that common doesn't have. 
most common is the so-called liquidation preference, which means if I buy Series A preferred stock and I pay a million dollars for that Series A preferred stock, if the company is sold for a million bucks, then I'm going to get everything that you know, every bit of the proceeds of the sale is going to go to me because I have a million dollar liquidation preference. No one's going to get anything else. Frequently, you know, the math, the way it works is the preferred stock is convertible into the common. The way that documents are usually drafted today is preferred stockholders are going to receive the greater of the following on a sale or liquidation of the company. They're going to receive either the liquidation preference back, if that would be a greater amount, or they're going to receive the amount they would have received had they converted to common stock so usually that's the way charter documents are drafted now. So in my example, I, I paid a million dollars. I bought a million dollars of Series A preferred stock. Let's say I invested at a $9 million pre-money. So the post was $10 million and I own 10% of the company. You know, if the company sells for $5 million, 10% of $5 million is still less than my million bucks. So the way it would work in a, in a situation with what would be referred to as non-participating preferred stock is the company sold for $5 million. I'd take my million off the top. Everyone else would share the $4 million and that would be it. If the company sold for fifty million, well, ten percent of fifty million is five million. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get the greater of my liquidation preference or what I would have been paid had I converted to common. And in this instance, converting into common would have netted me five million. So I'm gonna take five million. I'm gonna be treated as a common stockholder. There are other variations on the preferred stock. Sometimes preferred stock is participating, meaning, and this is a legitimate question for any, for anyone to ask if they're going to work for a company. Hey, you know, tell me about your liquidation preferences and, you know, sort of what the cap table looks like. You know, show me a summary cap table and tell me if the liquidation preferences are participating or not. And participating means that the Series A stockholders or the preferred stockholders always get their liquidation preference and then they also participate on it as common basis. So that's a pretty sweet deal. Say I invest a million dollars in a $9 million pre. So in my simple mathematical example, Let's just say I own 10% of this company, have a million dollar liquidation preference. If my liquidation preference is participating, then regardless of what the company sells for, I'm going to get my million bucks. And then whatever's left over is I'm going to get 10% of. Mm-hmm. So these little nuances can affect you know, returns to option holders for sure. And I think they're legitimate things for prospective hires to ask about. Hmm. Well, that raises an interesting question. What are the other things that prospective hires should ask about? Like I'm given my offer letter... We'll get to negotiation a little bit later, but you know, I get my offer letter and there's some things that are ambiguous to me. What are those ambiguities that I should be looking out for and how should I resolve them? So I think that there's, this is a complicated question in the sense that it also will depend on you know, your, your position in the company and how much information you can expect. I think in general, you should ask for as much visibility as, as a company will give you certain companies might not be able to give you absolutely everything. They aren't going to show you the entire cap table, perhaps. They might be able to give you a good sense of how things are, are set up and what the terms of the previous investors and things like this have, are so that you have an idea what those future scenarios might look like that Joe was mentioning. So in general, I would say the, the sort of meta advice is make sure you trust who you're going to go work for. I think in general, if you don't, it's very hard to have an adversarial and uh, kind of negotiated agreement on everything to do with compensation and have a good work environment and have, a, have it work out really well. So in general, you should not only be asking for information, but you should be evaluating, does it seem like this company is being fair and honest and like sharing with me things that are appropriate when I ask for it? So that's one thing to think about as you're asking the other questions. Because certainly not the, a large number of companies, but there are, there are 
certainly plenty of people who have been hired into startups or companies under very little information or not enough detail. And so they couldn't really fairly evaluate the offer. I've known many people who have signed offers with very little understanding of what the value is. They just <laughs> hope it's, you know, that it's fair because it's 5,000 options. Sounds good to me. In general, as you mentioned, you want to know percentage ownership. You want to know the previous investors and like what sort of terms they might have, as, as Joe was mentioning, because they will be paid off first in the case of an exit. You want to understand whether this company is trying to go really big long term. That means you probably won't have liquidity for a long time if it's very early. You want to understand the percentage ownership that might be in the future. So like what sort of fundraising will be needed in the future. Those are some key questions. And then there's some more technical things, certainly, about the actual form of the equity compensation. Like is it a stock option? Is it an ISO? Is it an NSO? All the different things that Joe was also mentioning. And they're discussed in the guide where there are specific tax implications and pitfalls around what form it takes. And you can often negotiate some of that too, depending on your leverage, the stage of the company, all that. A lot of it does depend on your leverage and you know how much the company wants to hire you versus other someone else. Getting back to our boilerplate terms, stock options are contracts that allow you to buy shares. We will discuss options in a little more detail why do companies offer stock options instead of just awarding RSUs? So I guess I should... RSUs are restricted stock units. This is just stock that you get that the company sets aside for employees. Joe, you and I were talking offline that this is one of the most common questions. Why do I get these options that I have to pay for rather than just getting stock? Explain this concept, Joe. Yeah, it's mostly about tax problems because the tax code, the federal income tax law basically says, hey, if you receive anything of value in connection with your services to an employer, then you have to pay tax on it, even if it's an illiquid item. And so like if, if a company transfers stock to you, you can't turn around and sell the stock because it's a restricted security under the federal securities laws and there's no market for it. And you're also subject to a variety of contractual restrictions on transfer but the IRS is still going to say, well, it's just as if you receive cash and you use the cash to buy the stock. So if you're sitting around and you are your average, you know, you know, American worker and your company wants to give you $100,000 of stock, you're going to say, whoa, hold on. I don't have the ability to write the IRS a check right now for $30,000 or whatever it's going to be. It's not going to be an insignificant amount of money. If you're an employee, the company has to withhold the income and employee side uh, employment taxes from you, which means you have to write the company a check. So the company has a, a, an obligation to play the employer side of FICA, but the big pain here is coming out of your pocket. And so you're not going to take a stock award if you can't afford to pay the taxes or you shouldn't. And RSUs have an even worse problem. Let's just say they give you RSUs on $100,000 worth of stock today, but the RSUs vest in quarterly increments over the next four years. Let's just say for the sake of example, well, the problem with that is that when your quarterly portions vest, the value might be more than the value now. And you're going to have the same problem at the one-year mark. When, when one quarter of your stock or RSUs are vested, you're going to get one quarter of the shares of stock issued to you. And you're going to have to write a check to the company to fulfill the company's employment tax withholding and income tax withholding obligations. And most people can't afford that. Most people can't afford it. So most people say, hey, I can't afford to pay tax today. It's too expensive, too painful. Price me a stock option at fair market value, and I'll go along for the ride.
people who are unfamiliar with the idea of a vesting schedule, stock and options have a vesting schedule. The vesting schedule defines when the equity becomes available to the employees, whether this is RSUs or options. The typical situation is a four-year vesting schedule for your equity with a one-year cliff, meaning that for the first year, you do not get any of that equity. That's the cliff. And then after you pass that point and you've proven yourself as a desirable employee where the company actually wants to give you a percentage of the company, you instantly get this allotment of your equity, and then you start to accrue more equity at a more steady rate afterwards. What are some of the aspects of the vesting schedule idea that confuse people? I think you gave a really good summary of how it works. Not any of that is usually carved in stone. So sometimes, for example, advisors might have a different vesting schedule than employees if you're ever an advisor to a startup or other variations like that. That's common. And sometimes employees might actually be able to just negotiate a change to that, though companies like to keep things consistent also. I think vesting itself is a pretty understandable concept. I think some of how it interacts with other things can be confusing. So stock is not yours until it vests. You have to just understand that. And that once it vests, you tend to think that it's just permanently yours. And as we were alluding to earlier, there are these exercise windows on stock options in particular. So vesting can occur on stock or on options. But if it occurs on options, you might think of it as yours. But those are still options, and you have to exercise them. And so if you do not exercise right away for whatever reason, because you don't have the cash or you didn't get around to it, or because the taxes or something would hurt you, those options are yours, but they only the options only have a validity for a certain period, which often is only 90 days after you leave a company. And so even if you're vested, there are some cases where you might realize that you, you can't hang on to the stock in the sense that you can't exercise the options without paying a lot of additional taxes or have paying a lot out of pocket. And that can be something around vested. It's not quite around vesting, but it's related in terms of understanding whether the stock is really available to you eventually. We have created a pretty reasonable picture for the basic situation that is common for equity compensation. There is this vesting schedule, you're typically given options. The reason you are given options is because of the tax complexities. There's actually a large section about taxes and the interaction between taxes and equity in the open guide to equity compensation. Let's get into some of those details. This I know this is not taxes engineering daily, and I don't want the listeners to start to fall asleep. But this is basically like the crux that creates the complexity in your equity compensation. So I don't know how you can make this entertaining, but Joe, how do taxes affect how an employee should think about their equity compensation? What do they need to know? Yeah, well, it's a big question. I mean, the, the I guess the biggest thing is you want to make sure you have some knowledge before you, you agree to take a tax hit. So... Like, for example, if a lot of people historically have made mistakes around incentive stock options, because you might have read, and it's not technically legally wrong, but you might have read, well, there's no ordinary income tax as a result of the exercise of an ISO. And that, and that is true. There's no ordinary 
income tax. However, there's, you know, your spread on the exercise of an ISO is an alternative minimum tax adjustment. And things get confusing when you start talking about the alternative minimum tax. And most, it's beyond the can of most, I think most people to figure it out on their own. And so you really need to go and talk to your tax return preparer or advisor and do some mathematical examples to make sure that if you exercise an ISO, the AMT adjustment doesn't trigger a, a substantial amount of tax due. It's possible that you could trigger a substantial amount of tax due on an ISO exercise. So I guess the big cautionary statement for everyone is, hey, you know, make sure you, you're thinking ahead and understand the tax consequences of these awards. So in other classic examples, that RSU example, like, hey, you know, I've had executives in private companies or, you know, incoming, you know, executives to companies that represent say, well, I want an RSU. And they're familiar with, you know, RSUs at Microsoft or Amazon at you know, it's a totally different situation when you have a public company like Microsoft or Amazon, and they can they can actually withhold from the shares they deliver to you to satisfy your income tax withholding obligation. There's a public market. I mean, it's completely different. If you get an RSU in a private company, you're basically setting yourself up to suffer a you know basically a time bomb in the future. You're gonna you're gonna be hit with a tax you know a tax bomb. You're setting a booby trap for yourself. So it's a, it's not a good not a good plan. For a private company that's in its earlier stages to take an RSU. So the point is, you always just know what's coming down the road on taxes when you're thinking about these awards. And that's the beauty of options. If you have an option priced at fair market value, you, the option E, control, generally speaking, subject to vesting, you control when it's exercised, right? An RSU typically vests on a schedule, and so you're, it's out of your control. I don't know what you want to add to that, Josh. Yeah, I might have a couple things. I mean, I, I think that, yeah. All of that's really important about getting the right advice and understanding. There's a couple specific traps that people need to be aware of and that sometimes they're now pretty common knowledge, so people will tell you about them often within a company. They kind of have a big impact on how you think about things, which is that in general, options are good, as Joe mentioned, and you get to choose when you exercise, which gives you more flexibility depending on whether you have cash on hand and when and if you can pay the taxes and so on. There is one case that's well known that can cause you a lot of taxes, which is if you have an ISO and you exercise and there's a spread between the price that you're, you're paying for the stock and that it's, it's fair market value, then that spread is an AMT event and that's what Joe was talking about. So that particular one is one where it's very, it can burn you both ways because you could have a situation where you didn't exercise an ISO stock option and then once there is a spread there, then you either have to pay a very large amount of taxes and to exercise and keep it, which some people did during like the dot-com boom of the first, first time. They would often have a lot of these taxes and then realize they have immense bills, tax bills they can't pay. Or you might think ahead and realize you just have to walk away from your stock options and lose every, like have nothing, which is better than having a debt to the IRS. So that was sort of the trap that is mentioned in the guide. And that's something that a lot of people work carefully to avoid now, but it kind of has a big implication on how, how you do things. One way is to do NSOs. Another way is to actually just make sure you exercise early. There's a few ways around it, but it's just a, a big gotcha. Hmm. Given that we've talked some about the equity compensation situation at this point, how should an employee use their understanding of equity compensation to negotiate effectively. Maybe this is an employee who is receiving an offer letter. Maybe it's an employee who is sitting at a company that's been at the startup for a while, or maybe been at the big company for a while. 
how can you use that as leverage, that knowledge? Josh, because you've, you've worked at companies a little bit more. How have you used that to leverage to your how advantage? How have you used the knowledge of equity compensation to your advantage? Yes. There's a lot to be said for just understanding the rules of the game. There's a whole bunch of benefits. One is you, if your employer is actually giving you a, a low offer, a potential employer is giving you a low offer, then you actually can understand and have some sense of that. If especially if they're, or if they're giving you not so much a low but a misleading offer or they're not telling you key information. So, for example, they're telling you number of shares but never telling you percentage ownership whatsoever when it comes to stock or options. That's just like not telling you key facts. It's like paying you monopoly money, really. And that's not a fair... You just don't know what the value of that, that money is. Uh, that sort of thing you can avoid by understanding the rules. So I think that that's just clear, basic, good, good sense. There are some cases where the more you know about the system also when it actually comes to negotiation, and the negotiation does matter in job offers. There's lots of blogs and discussion on this if ever you go Googling around where people have made big changes in their offers by having sensible negotiation strategy that you can negotiate or, or debate certain points that matter to you. Maybe you want to have more equity because you think the company will take off and that will be a big plus in the future and you don't need the cash. You're fine for cash or you're, li you're happy living on ramen, whatever you prefer. That gives you some flexibility and you have to understand the rules in evaluating your preferences. On the other hand, maybe you have a lot of bills and you're like, I really don't want a bunch of these options that I think might not pan out and unless you pay me a really good salary, I'm just not going to join. That's good to understand that that's your priorities. And the, the company should do that too, should understand that. A final thing is that during negotiations, there's just lots of different variations and levers you can pull besides just cash versus equity. You might ask for a bonus to cover taxes, or you might ask for a follow-on grant if you meet certain objectives, you know, to just or at least informally agree on something like that. There's lots of things you can discuss once you understand what the structures are. We are nearing the end of our time. We get about ten minutes left. I want to talk some about the founder's perspective. In the open guide, you have the section dedicated to the stages of a startup. You start out bootstrapped, you're, you don't have any money, then you have a Series C, you have a Series A, Series B. Along this path, there is dilution occurring. Joe, how does the ideal strategy for equity compensation, from the founder's point of view, when your employee base is, is ramping up, you're getting more and more seasoned people, so maybe you have to pay them more. How does the ideal strategy for equity compensation change along this timeline of different fundraising events? Well, I mean, so I guess one big thing people need to think about is, I mean, if the company is pre-series you know, pre seed, if it hasn't, maybe it's raised convertible notes, but it have, if it hasn't raised like a fixed price financing with investors, then the company probably hasn't been forced to, you know, have a set amount set aside for use in the equity incentive pool. I mean, frequently when the founders come together, they, they'll put 15 to 20% of sort of the issued shares in a, into a stock option pool. But if there's no external restraint, if there's no investor who's come in and imposed a restraint on that amount, that amount can be increased. Just the founders can increase it themselves. So it's pretty easy I mean, I think one thing to just keep in mind is if you are negotiating for a job with a company that's already done a fixed price financing with a venture fund, you know, that venture fund almost undoubtedly imposed a limit on what the company could do. So the, the venture fund forced the company to, you know, set aside a certain amount of money for equity compensation. 
And now, you know, the amount that you're going to get out of that pool is going to be defined by, you know, the market and what investors are typically willing to bear for a particular role. And so there's just going to be more, there's going to be more scrutiny of the size of your award post the first fixed price financing. Pre the first fixed price financing, maybe there's more, there's more room to negotiate. I read a great article on Medium not too long ago. I forgot who wrote it, but I'm sure you could find it if you Googled it. But the, the article was all about how we should be more like Steve Ballmer. <laughs> and so the, the, the article was about like everyone's going to like Steve Jobs. But it was a great article. And there was, was a point in that article where it said, hey, you know, Ballmer was employee number 30 at Microsoft, but somehow got 8%. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea was the, the question mark, I think, in the article was just how did he do that? But, you know... I don't know. I suspect he got 8% because there was no external... Microsoft hadn't raised money from a VC yet and like you know entered into the sort of constraints that companies now enter into when they take money from VCs. Mm. Yeah. We touched on the importance of taxation from the employee's perspective. So, Joe, what about the perspective of the founder? How do taxes affect the founder and the architects of the company? Well, so usually at the company founding, you can you typically receive all your shares tax free because you know if like the three of us wanted to come together to start a company, let's say we're all going to be equal founders, we're each going to receive a million shares or two million shares for our for our contribution of cash and IP. Even though we'd all be on vesting schedules, we'd file the E3B elections and we would indicate that well, the value of the shares I received when when I came in to found this company with these guys was the amount I paid for the shares. And we each agreed to pay a thousand bucks, so we could open a bank account for you know a few thousand bucks then to get started. And so you'd file an A three B, and then you wouldn't have any additional taxes as things vest. And so usually founders, I mean, unless they just sort of blow it and don't file the A three B election, usually founders have a pretty nice tax situation in terms of their founder shares. They they start their capital gains holding period, and so that's good. But founders are subject to the same sort of problems later if. You know, if there's a reworking of the cap table and say a year in, the three founders come together and one of the founders clearly deserves more equity because of the just the way things have worked out in terms of roles and responsibilities and time commitments. Well, in that situation, so we're a year in, we're going to have to confront a tax problem then and try to figure out how to make sure we, when we rework the equity, the founder who's getting additional shares doesn't pay tax somehow. And that can be, that can be tricky. But generally speaking, from the outset, it's a pretty good, a pretty good outcome for founders. Hmm. Josh, as somebody who's been working at startups for a while, how should a company create an atmosphere where it's okay for people to talk about equity compensation openly? Well, I, I think one of the key things about about a well-run company and startups in particular is that you have a certain amount of fairness and trust around how employees are treated. And so one of the key things I would, I think, is either a founder or as you know an executive in a company or as an employee that everyone ideally works toward is to encouraging that kind of culture. I don't think it necessarily means 100% full transparency about everything. Even companies that try for transparency can't be transparent about absolutely everything. There's just a lot of reasons that sometimes it's hard. But I do think it's fundamentally important to be transparent about the things that you can be and to do enough of that that you have some trust that, that the company is being honest and fair in not taking advantage of its own employees. And a company that doesn't do that often ends up paying a price down the road later. So a couple things just to think about are like, sometimes you'll see people talking about how they've negotiated their offer up by a factor of two or four or something incredible like that. 
Well, that means the company was giving a much lower offer to begin with <laughs> than, than the employee was initially worth. Now, sometimes that's because of a competitive offer, and that's, you know, that sometimes is a factor. But usually when something like that happens, what it means is that the company was perhaps lowballing the offer a little too much. So that sort of thing is, I think, unhelpful. That's an example where companies that give pretty fair offers and are known for giving fair offers helps everyone. Doesn't mean you don't you go with incredibly insane offers for everyone. You can't do that and run a company effectively either. But you don't take advantage of people's lack of knowledge or, or ignorance of the system to close the deal. Instead, you, you take advantage of the fact that they want to work there and this is a good company and it has a good, good future and, you're, and you're, you come with a, a pretty reasonable compensation plan. Because generally that bites both sides of the table later when people aren't compensated fairly. So that those are kind of some mm. general thoughts. Mm. I do think typically employees will often sometimes compare notes or, or, or do that sort of thing. It's rare to have a company be completely transparent about its cap table or have all employees know their cash salaries, know each other's cash salaries. I think it's an interesting experiment. There's no reason you, you can't, but it makes it, there's certain problems sometimes to having complete transparency. Yeah, I think Buffer is experimenting with this, if, right. if I recall. That's an example where I, I think it's great they're doing that. A lot of companies may not want to be the first company ever to try the most extreme version of something like transparency yeah. or and so you're just like do i a want to do that it's not it's a great aspiration and i think it's good that companies are fair about these things but at the same time there's unexpected consequences and just lots of legal bills and things to think about some of these things sometimes and changing the way the contracts and things are done so i think there's founders really should push for that but it's worth being understanding as an employee that you can't just expect a company to be completely different than all others only based on the aspirations of being. You have to think about the realities of, of common practice as well. Hmm. Okay, well, Joe and Josh, I want to thank you both for coming out Software Engineering Daily, and thanks for writing this open guide to equity compensation. I think following in the footsteps, or I guess this was this preceded the AWS open guide. Josh, you and I had a, a conversation on Software Engineering Daily a while ago about the Amazon Web Services Open Guide, which you wrote, or which you start, which you started with some other people. But I think this con- continues down the path of your goal with Open Guides, where you are making information that is basically locked up in the minds of the collective available in a single place. So these Open Guides are super useful, and I encourage people to check them out just as really good reading material. So thank you both for creating this resource. Thanks, Jeff. And and I encourage folks to check out the guide and also contact us with or, or file pull requests and contributions. So you're more than welcome to contribute to these these guides as well or or potentially even talk to us about helping write other things in the future. So hope to see you online. That's right. These are on GitHub, so they are alterable by the public. Exactly. Yeah, so that that's okay. something we're great. Well, great. Well, excited to hear from folks. Okay, well thank you both. Thanks for having us on the show.